My son Joshua was about four, four and a half, I think. And he came to me and Sarah. I might have told some of you this story, but Joshua came to me and Sarah. And, and he was like, Mommy, Daddy, you know what would be really scary? And we were like, what would be really scary? And he said, if God was a bad guy. And we are like, yeah, that would be pretty scary. And over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how God isn't a bad guy. But we've been talking about some of these things that make us wonder sometimes. If there isn't a maybe harsh or overly intense or... Yeah, I'll let you fill in the blanks. But sometimes you wonder. The, the story we're going to look at this morning is the one that really set me on a journey of, of trying to say, wait a minute, what is this gap? What do we do with the reality of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament? And that's where we've been, and some of you, we have a few first-timers this morning, so I'm not going to give a full recap, but I'm just going to say we've been giving some frameworks to maybe help us understand and bridge the gap between some things we see in the Old Testament, like God almost annihilating the entire human race and Jesus coming to die for the entire human race and saying, is this two different gods? Or God demanding bloody sacrifices and Jesus becoming the ultimate sacrifice. Are these two different gods? So I've given three frameworks that have helped me and you can listen to those online if you're so inclined. I think we're, we have them all up there now. www.coastlandsvineyard.org for the recording. But... Where it all started was when my wife Sarah and I were at a conference in Thailand and someone was sharing about the profound goodness and tenderness and love of God. You could feel some of that tenderness this morning in worship, couldn't you? Did you notice kind of how the dynamic, it went from this very like, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the Lord, there's this intensity and then it kind of, it just kind of slowed down and moved into this tender kind of thing. I I'm, don't even remember what exact song we were singing then, but I just remember feeling a real profound tenderness in the room. And I was like, that's how God is as well. That's how the Holy Spirit is as well. There's a tenderness there. There's a patience. There's a... Tenderness is just the best word, I think. So that's what this one communicator was talking about. And Sarah heard this message, was all inspired by the goodness of God, and then she goes and opens up her Bible. She had been reading through the Chronological Bible, which is a wonderful way to read through Scripture, if you haven't. She's reading through a Chronological Bible, and she comes to this part where Moses, after all that he had done, makes a silly little mistake. Let's read the story real quick if this works. Oh no, now it's going to go way ahead of me. So this is in the book of Numbers, I believe. Numbers chapter 20. Hopefully you can read that font size. That's called squeezing it in there. It says, in the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. So they're in the wilderness. And while they're there, Miriam dies and was buried. There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. 
The people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. That's not dramatic at all. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die along with all our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Those are interesting choices of things to complain about. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people. They're like, I give up almost. And went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. Probably a little bit exasperated. Would you agree? Like, I, I give up. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, now here's the kicker, remember? Speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told, kind of. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. So he's in a very patient mood right now. He's, he's definitely representing a God that is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love, isn't he? Listen up, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff. And water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, we don't know yet, Tokino. What was that last part? I missed it. Oh, you did not trust me. Thank you. Communal messages. Crowdsourcing. You did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel. You will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. This place was known as the waters of Meribah, which means arguing, because there the people of Israel argued with the Lord, and there God demonstrated His holiness among them. So Moses, who has spent at least 39 years, 40 years of his life, faithfully serving God and the Israelites, was told to speak to a rock, and he strikes it. And he is told, um, sorry, that promised land over there, later in Deuteronomy, Moses says that God said to him, go up onto this mountain, look out on the promised land, you're not going in there. You're going to die on this hill and go be with your ancestors. How many of you have read that and you're thinking, what a harsh punishment? I mean, think for a minute about who Moses is. What were some of the things that Moses contributed to the life of the Israelites? What were some of the high points, highlights of Moses' leadership? Any? What's that? He parted the Red Sea. Okay, you get a few spiritual points for that, don't you think? He parted the Red Sea. What else? He delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. Was that kind of a small, measly task? Like, oh, anybody could do that. No. Yeah, that was a handful of people from a pretty powerhouse of an empire. What else has Moses contributed? to the spiritual life of the Israelites. Dora? 
So he faced Pharaoh and continued to speak for them, even against incredible opposition. Anything else? He reflected the face of God. He comes down the mountain with what? In his hands. With the Ten Commandments in his hands. And they're like, we can't even look at Moses' face because it's so bright and shiny. And Joseph, what are you going to say? Last one. There were multiple times that God's like, I'm done with these people. <laughs> hey, I'm gracious and compassionate, but if anybody has tested me to my limit, they've, they've pushed me to my limits. And Moses is like, hey, 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 no, 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 no. Don't do that. Did Moses have a decent track record? How many of you would feel good about your spiritual life if you had the track record of Moses? Any of you be feeling all right? And so Moses seemingly makes this one little mistake. God says, speak to the rock. And Moses strikes the rock. And God says, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know you did all that. That was beautiful. But you're not going into the promised land. Makes you curious, doesn't it? Is that the... And I used to read this. This is what Sarah found herself confronted by it, she's hearing the message of this loving, gracious, compassionate God, and then she reads this story, and she's like, uh, that's called incongruence? I don't know what to do with that? And I think what I used to project onto this story, and I, I don't know if I would have said this, my family was visiting this week, and they left yesterday, and I was debating, all right, I didn't know if my mom was going to be here at church this morning, and I was like, would I say this if my mom was in the room? Um, <laughs> she's not. So I can say it in an honoring way. I grew up in one of those I told you so households because I said so. Anyone else? Hey, you need to blah, blah, blah. Well, why, Mom? Because I said so. That's why. Yes, ma'am. And my mom was an I told you so because I said so, Mom, because she grew up in I told you so household. And her parents grew up in a because I said so household. And so I grew up with a because I said so God. And so did Sarah. So as I'm reading, and as Sarah's reading the story of Moses, the cop-out answer, in a sense, is, well, God can punish Moses that way regardless of what Moses has done because God said so and God is God. But is that a very parental response? Is anybody maybe not super content with that being a sufficient answer? And so it caused us to do some digging, and we thought, well, wait a minute. What if there's more to the story? What if there's something else going on here that we could grab onto? And what if it helped us see that actually this is an act of goodness, kindness, grace, and compassion? Is that possible? So we started thinking about the dynamics of leadership, and I'm not going to go too much into all of these, but, well, let me add one other layer to this as well that makes it even trickier. Moses was simply doing what he had done before. Remember this? 
In Exodus 17, we'll read through this real quick to just add another layer of confusion before we try to sift through it. This is Exodus 17. At the Lord's commands, this is 39 years prior. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin, which is an interesting name, and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at another interesting name, but there was no water there for the people to drink. Have we heard this story before? So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Doesn't this sound like we're reading the same story? Maybe we are, and I made a mistake in the keynote, but I think it's two separate stories. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people, take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. So not only does Moses disobey the second time, but he's only doing something that was totally fine the first time. You're like, man, this just gets weirder. Why was it fine 39 years before with a different generation and not okay now to the point where Moses would not be, enter, be allowed to enter the promised land? So some rabbis think that it's an issue of leadership style. This is just a theory I'll throw out there. This is not the main point. This, this message might kind of feel like a little bit like a tree. Like there's a main point, kind of a trunk, but then we're going to branch out with just a couple observations and thoughts, and then we'll bring it back around. But one of the theories is that it's a leadership dynamic going on. 39 years before, in Exodus 17, what kind of people was Moses dealing with? What kind of people was he leading? He was leading people that had just been set free from slavery. In their ways of thinking, acting, and being, they were still slaves. Would a slave understand threats and coercion and force? Absolutely. But 39 years later, Moses is dealing with a different generation, isn't he? Joshua and Caleb seemingly are the only ones that have survived from this previous generation. They're free people. Do free people understand and respond to coercion, threat, and force? Not without some pushback. But do they respond to persuasion and dialogue and invitation? So is it possible that what God was asking Moses to do was representative of the new type of leadership Moses would have to embody to lead a new type of people into the promised land? And maybe Moses wasn't actually ready for that. 
there's another angle to this as well. And Moses was used to having a staff, but he was about to enter into the land of Canaan to do some what? Warfare. Correct? Is it possible that one of the things that God is saying in this story is, Moses, if I can't trust you with a staff in your hand, how can I trust you with a sword? To be the representative of me and my goodness to the people and the people of these other lands. If I can't trust you with a staff, how can I trust you with a sword? You know what I wonder? Have you... So maybe you've been through a situation where you've, you've lost a job, or maybe not completely lost your job, but you've lost a position or a title, and you're thinking, man, is God punishing me? But have you ever been in a situation where that happens, and maybe from the outside it looks like punishment or discipline or like you've done something wrong, but really God is actually setting you free to do something different and become someone different that you couldn't become within that situation? Have you ever had that happen? Or maybe on the front side of a situation, you're like, whoa, what is God doing? Why is God yanking the rug out from under me? And then you come through the other side and you're like, thank you, God, for yanking the rug out from under me. Because you did a work in my life that I don't think you could have done in this context. I think sometimes God relieves people of leadership situations for their own good, for the sake of their soul and for the sake of the souls that they are called to lead. I don't think it's necessarily punishment at all. When God says to Moses, hey, go and look at this promised land. You're not going to go in there, but you're going to die here and go be with your ancestors. Do you think Moses felt punished? Or do you think he felt relieved? Do you think Moses was bummed to die and go through the other side and be in the presence of God? Is he like, oh man, I don't have to spend more time with these whining, complaining Israelites that want to kill me every corner we turn? He's like, oh God, why are you punishing me this way? I think Moses is like, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you. Do you think that's possible? He's like, finally. He's like, Joshua, sucker, I'll pray for you. (laughs) I don't think that Moses felt punished. I think he felt relieved. And I think there was maybe something building in Moses to this point where God was like, look it, if we let this continue on, this is just going to get worse and worse and worse. Moses, you're called to be my representative. You're called to be my face. But you are so exasperated by these people that you can't accurately reflect my goodness and gracious and kindness to them anymore. God's like, we need to move someone else into the picture. And Moses, I'm relieving you of duty. I'm setting you free to fulfill your calling. I'm trying to decide 
I think there's another piece of this, and this is where we'll kind of bring it around to and, and land here. I think besides the leadership piece, I think maybe the other piece of this is what if what is God's promise to one person can actually be the land of pain for another? What if what was the promised land for these Israelites actually would not have been the healthiest thing for Moses? Um, in, where's it at? Let me show you a verse actually that Moses gives us another reason, by the way, that God doesn't allow him to enter into the promised land. He doesn't just say God punishes me because God is bad, like Joshua Fela is scared of. He says, Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 31, when Moses had finished giving these instructions to all the people, he said, hey, I'm 120 years old. I'm not that spry anymore. I can't do what I used to do. I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has told me, you will not cross the Jordan River, but the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy the nations living there, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua will lead you across the river just as the Lord promised. So Moses says, hey, this is a very practical thing. I am 120 now. I can't move like I used to. I can't respond like I used to. But he doesn't say anything about feeling disciplined or punished. That's not the vibe that we get. Is it possible that maybe we've taken up an offense for Moses against God in our reading? An offense that Moses never took? Now, let's go back to the promise thing for just a minute. Have you ever really, really had your heart set on something that you were convinced God was in, that you knew was the best thing for you? And before your very eyes, it just disintegrates and you're like, God, how could you? You promised. God, you said. God, I thought. And then it just dissolves in front of your very eyes. Who's had that happen before? That's not very fun, is it? But looking back on where you are now, if that thing would have come to pass... Knowing what you know now, do you wish that it would have happened the way you wanted it to happen then? Does that make any sense? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that what looks like a promise from one end, when you get to the other side, it actually sometimes seems like not all it was cracked up to be, doesn't it? I remember, well... Some of you know my story that I wanted to move directly out here to Morro Bay from Madeira. And God was like, well, I have a little detour for you. It's going to feel like 39 years in the wilderness at some points. So we're going to take you through Colorado. We're going to take you through about 38 other countries in the meantime, take you through China, and then eventually we'll bring you back to Morro Bay. On the front end, it looked like God was killing a promise and killing my dream. But on the back end, God was saying, no, I want to make you into the type of person that can actually appreciate the fulfillment of the promise, the fulfillment of the promise. I remember getting asked to go on a trip to Africa when I wanted to go to South America. And on this trip to Africa that I thought was a detour from my promised land of Latin America, I happened to meet some girl that becomes my wife a year later. That was a very 
healthy detour. <laughs> I'm really glad that God didn't fulfill that dream of mine to go take another trip to South America. So for Moses, I think we have in our minds, you know, well, what happened to Moses? He got, he got punished and relieved of duty, but the promise was fulfilled for Moses in a way that he never saw coming. The same Moses, like we referenced earlier, that said, God, if you don't go into the promised land, I don't want to go. The promise is empty without your presence, Moses says. And if we fast forward the whole story, we find the disciples in a very interesting situation with Jesus in Matthew 17. We fast forwarded, what, a few thousand years? We're saying, oh, poor Moses, he never got to enter the promised land. And then you say, oh, wait a minute. Did he not? Six days later, Jesus, the real Joshua, no offense, other Joshua, took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun. Hey, who else had that happen to them? More than once. And his clothes became white as light. Suddenly, who's there with him? Where was Jesus? Was Jesus in the promised land? Jesus was very much in the promised land, wasn't he? Geographically, physically. And who shows up with him, meeting with him face to face, with such an intensity that their whole being is brilliant and radiant with light? Remember, this is the Moses to whom God said, no one can see my face and live. And now God says, hey Moses, you can see my face now. Come with me, i got something to show you. In the promised land, with the presence that you were longing for. I bet Moses was standing there just trying to contain himself. I don't think it was a casual thing. He's just like, oh, this is cool. He probably wanted to weep and dance and hug Jesus. And like, I don't know what he's thinking. I don't know what happened between Moses' death on that hill and this encounter. But I know that it must have been so emotional for Moses because this was finally his fullness of entrance into the promised land. No one can see my face and live. And yet here Moses is looking into the face of the fullness of God in the promised land. How many of you still feel bad for Moses? It's okay if you do. How many of you are like, poor Moses, he just got so punished by an arbitrary and angry God. Maybe you never did feel bad for Moses, and I had just kind of had some beef that I needed to... This was cathartic for me. Thank you. But we see that there's actually a lot of goodness in this story that you don't just catch if you dive and dig too deep into the 
passage itself, right? As you zoom out a little bit, you see, wait a minute, this is actually loaded with goodness and grace and mercy and compassion. So a couple of thoughts for us, and then we'll respond. We're going to X the slides for a moment. I guess the thing that this makes me think is, even in Moses' shoes in my own life, I guess the things that I feel like God has for me, I, get, I begin to hold them very tightly, and they, they start to look a certain way, and they need to look a certain way for me to feel satisfied or feel like God is coming through. But I guess over the years I've been learning that, that is, you're going to feel let down unless you can let go of that expectation and say, God, I know you're for me, I know you're with me, and I know you're going to bring this around. We take these promises and we kind of make them into the the goal, but it's easy to forget sometimes that it's God's presence that makes the promise what it is, right? So my question for you is, has there been a time that you thought God had something in store for you and it didn't pan out, and maybe you haven't seen it come full circle yet? Have you had a promise from God or a dream from God or an expectation for God that you haven't seen pan out and you're like, you know what, God? I thought you were going to come through. I thought you had something good for me. And maybe you're sitting in the middle of the tension right now. Maybe you're still waiting to see it come around. Let's ask this. How many of you have experienced what Moses did? Maybe not to the same degree. But where you've given up a dream, where God's maybe you've changed lanes and you've seen it come full circle. How many of you have had that happen? Raise your hand. If something's totally come full circle, and until you got there, you had no idea how it was going to come about. Let me see those hands again. Yeah. Look at that. I love it. How many of you are still in the tension right now, waiting for it to come full circle? Anybody that's willing to kind of... <laughs> yeah. A few of you. Yeah. That's totally fine. Yeah. Is there another piece of it? So there's some of us that have seen it come full circle and there's some of us that are waiting in the tension, waiting for the promise to come around. What else? Let's let's just, we'll take a minute or two. Let's hear from two or three people. Is there something else that God is saying to you? How does this land with us as a community right now in 2015? Yeah, Phil. <laughs> give us like, give us a billion. Nice and loud. Okay, so um, that whole thing you were talking about with ISIS and you know all the, the pictures and what came back to me when you said Moses led with a staff, not with a sword. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, um, um, as believers, the, the symbols in the early church of Christians were. people and followers of a peaceful God. We were no longer a conquering God. And I think somewhere, you know, because I saw there's things on Facebook now, this is a real picture of ISIS, and the crusade started 400 years after the Islamic, you know, tyranny and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, that doesn't make it right. And so we still need to be representatives of peace that Mm. Jesus was. And I think Christians are, from all the conversations, 
conversations that I've had with guys in this community and, and whatnot are, well, God's a this kind of God. Well, Jesus isn't far from the God that's being portrayed by the Islamic extremists in a lot of people's perspective. Mm-hmm. That's the perspective of Christianity. The perspective yeah. of Jesus is a peaceful God. Yeah. And so we need to reclaim the peacefulness of that. That yeah. God doesn't, he doesn't lead with a staff <laughs> like attacking mm. the, the Islam. I mean, we have to agree that that's a sad state of affairs, but in order to, to fight violence, we don't fight it with violence, we fight it with Jesus and with peace. No. And that's what we can bring to the table. And so anyway, that's what you brought me to. So mm. anyway, that's... No. No. Thanks for bringing that back around. And I think another great place that that lands for me, the use sparked, is parenting. <laughs> How do I portray when I'm tired and exhausted? Another, I'm not going to go into confession time because uh, Mike's already done enough of that for me. <laughs> but, um, no, but just, yeah, what does it look like for us to be a representative of the God that leads? And by the way, all those verses about your rod and your staff, they come from me and people say, well, the rod was for discipline, but the rod was for protection. It, what, it was for the... Yeah, that, we're not going to get into that, but it... Right. It wasn't to beat them. <laughs> yeah. Right. Let's hear from Betty, and then we're going to respond. Wait, what, what do you... <laughs> Unpack what you mean by full of it. <laughs> oh, full of that. Okay. Yeah. And the promises are dynamic, maybe more than static, aren't they? Very well said. Yeah. Yeah. And remember manna? What did manna mean? <laughs> if I'm half as vibrant as you are when I'm your age, I will be so content. So, um, yeah. What was manna, the thing that God fed them in the wilderness with? Remember? If they would store it for more than a day, Apart from over the Sabbath, what would happen? It would rot. 
there's a freshness, there's a dynamism that God has in God's promises. And yeah, so, yeah, excellent summary. So, I want to see if any of you would, would like prayer. I'll pray for us, but if you, maybe you're sitting in the tension where you haven't seen the promise come around and you need patience or you need perspective or you just need to be reinfused with a sense of hope that God is in this and God hasn't forgotten about you or taken you on a detour, will you get prayer from somebody? And if there's something else that it's triggered in you that you want to get prayer from someone, and I know some people had some words and, and pictures, so if you have something that you're feeling for someone here that you want to share with them, then please go do that. And lastly, if anyone needs prayer for anything physical, I know last week we had a few people that just had some physical things going on. They wanted prayer just to, to feel better, to get some physical healing. Please get prayer before you go.